a minister in the Presbyterian Church of America. He has been pastoring over in Douglasville for many years, but for what, the last six or seven years? He has now been training church planters in India, and uh, he is one of our missionaries that we support. And not only do we support him, but we even let him preach from time to time. So he is here to bring us to God's word and to preach on parenting and on uh, honoring thy parents since he, he, he said, I need to preach on the Sabbath. I don't know if he felt like I didn't have enough experience yet as a parent or what, but he's skipping to number five, and I'll go back to number four this week, next week. So, Jim, this is Jim. Good morning, church. Thank you. It's good to be back with you. And uh, I'm sure Andrew's probably a better father than I was. Uh, I just wasn't, didn't feel up to the Sabbath. I'll let him tell you how to keep the Sabbath in your church. And uh, I'm not walking into somebody else's church and telling them what to do. Uh, it's against my nature. So, so I'll tell you what God says, though. And uh, so we're going to start by reading what God says in Deuteronomy 5. 16. Here it is. It's very quick and short. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you. It's a great promise right here that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So when talking to parents, Paul quotes this in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then he hedges a little bit right here. Fathers, not the mothers, but fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This ends a reading of God's word. It's short, but it's really sweet. You know, I, I'm a city boy. I don't know if you know that. And uh, the Lord ripped us out of the city. I actually didn't grow up in the inner city. I grew up in the close-in suburbs, but I'm a city boy. I did not grow up in the country. And uh, the Lord ripped us out of our city environment in 2001 and moved us to Douglasville and West Georgia. And it was a shock to us. It's the smallest town we've ever lived in. And Carrollton, I'm sure, is even more uh, country than, than Douglasville. And so uh, my, when I grew up, my grandparents, well, my mom's parents lived 100 miles to the north, and my dad's parents lived 100 miles to the south, and we would see them some. But, you know, we weren't close-knit. We loved each other. But I, I noticed that when we got to West Georgia that there were all these people who had bought like 10 or 20, 30 acres together, and then they'd start subdividing and letting their kids live nearby. It all seemed a little creepy to me. <laughs> um, but... But now, now that I'm a grandparent and I have grandchildren, well, my motto is, is I want to keep my kids close and my grandkids closer. I, I, I finally get the whole thing. Well, the fifth commandment is about generational faithfulness, how God's covenant of grace moves from generation to generation. You know, one of, one of the hurdles we have to overcome as you're studying the, the Ten Commandments this fall, one, one of the hurdles you have to overcome to understand them well is, is to get past our modernist and progressive view that somehow the rules are stifling my personal freedom and my ability to discover myself. If you haven't made the world view jump yet over the last few weeks, I want you to make it today. 
The Ten Commandments, the the Ten Words as they're called, are the foundation of God's covenant with Israel through Moses. Now, a covenant is like a contract, and the commands are the terms. And so the commandments, the Ten Commandments, serve as culture builders. That's what I want you to remember. They serve as culture builders. A, a, great, uh, a great illustration of that is the, the Constitution of the United States. That, that Constitution for us uh, lays the foundation for, for our culture of government and, and citizen liberty. And the Ten Commandments do the same thing for God's people, Israel, and in part for the New Testament church. So, If you'll notice in the Constitution, most of it's stated in the negative, giving limits to the government and and individual rights. And then it's up to the Congress to flesh out the meat on the bones. And so it's the same with the Ten Commandments. They're mostly stated in in the negative. This one's in the positive. And, And the first five commandments define our vertical culture and our relationship with God. And the second five define our horizontal culture and our relationship with each other. And the pen in the middle that turns the commandments on each other is this one, the fifth commandment. And so Moses then gives us case law for explanations of how the 10 commandments work out in the life of God's people in the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So I just want you to realize that God's commandments, are, are, they're not busy work. This isn't homework that you're somehow supposed to figure out that's trite and unnecessary. God's commands are the means for, for human flourishing. God, God is the creator, the sustainer, and, and the redeemer, and he loves us, and his kingdom is designed for our good. Now, in the ancient world, a covenant had five parts. And I don't have time today to go into all of that. It would be a lesson on the covenants. But the, the, the commandments are divided into two groups of five. And that's for a reason. And the fifth part of a covenant had to do with the succession and inheritance. How, how does the covenant move from generation to generation? That's what the fifth part of the covenant was about. And that's what the fifth and the tenth commandments are about. The fifth commandment is about generational inheritance in the kingdom. And the tenth commandment, which is do not covenant, and you'll get to that in a few weeks, The 10th commandment, do not covenant, is about keeping your eyes and your hands off of other people's inheritance. So that's how those two go go together. So I have two points this morning that I want to share with you. Two things that I want you to see about the gospel. And the first one is, is that generational faithfulness to Christ comes from a culture of honor and grace. So the first point is generational faithfulness to Christ comes from a culture of honor. Honor in Hebrew is a word that means heavy. So this tells us that this is really important. It's like the the word gravitas that the politicians always use and don't have. God's God's design for his kingdom is built around families. It's a, it's a design of authority and responsibility. God, God's authority 
uh, to rule and to reign in the kingdom is given to parents along with the responsibility to raise children in fear and admonition of the Lord. That's how he set up the system to work. It's why the Old Testament saints circumcised baby boys, and it's, it's why we baptize infants and children. Ch- children don't just inherit money and property from their parents. They inherit the covenant of grace. And so, so we don't wait until they approve or, or they disapprove somehow for that magical day when it all seems right and they're ready. We give them their inheritance at once. It's not a dedication. It's their inheritance. Baptism is your children's birthright. And the kingdom is the most valuable thing that we'll ever, they'll ever inherit. So we start right from the beginning to give it to them. Now, the problem is, is that we live in a modern age of progressivism. Secular humanism, it's, it's sometimes called. It's a worldview that flies in the face of the gospel. The question is, are you going to build your life and your family and your church around Christ and, and the apostles? Or are you going to build it on Darwin? You see, humanism, progressivism, is built on Darwin. Humanism teaches that the the family is simply a a social construct that that is evolved as a means of survival. The family, therefore, enslaves women and, and enriches men in order to survive. And so humanism says we need to make the next evolutionary jump to complete independence from the family where all we are is a collective together and the and the the collective of the family is replaced with the collectivism of the state as a means of survival we're just individuals it's a worldview of communism and atheism and progressivism and and so therefore humanism seeks to destroy the family because that's the roadblock to their evolutionary end and so if you look at the history of the 20th, 20th century it's just a testimony to this goal of family destruction and it's in our culture and and the answer the truth the pushback is not capitalism it's not economics It's not traditionalism. It's not nationalism. The answer is the gospel. That's what the goal is. You see, God's design for his kingdom is built around the family and the church. And the church is the family of God. So that the gospel of Christ would be the the primary inheritance of every generation. It's built into the system from the beginning of time. Here's what Genesis chapter 1 says. Right at the creation So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, father and mother together are a team dedicated to bringing God's dominion to the whole world, God's kingdom of grace to the whole earth. And they do that first in their own family through a culture of honor. You see, children learn to honor and love and honor the Lord whom they can't see by learning to love and honor their parents whom they can see. That, that's the way the system works. And that way you can see that parents are a placeholder for God. They're not God 
and some parents think they are, but they're not. They're, they're a, a, a placeholder. Here's a great quote from R.J. Rushtuni. I think it's going to be on the board, so you don't just have to hear me say it. The family is not only the first environment of the child, it's also his first school where he receives his basic education. It's his first church where he's taught his first and foundational lessons concerning God and life. It's his first state where he learns the elements of law and order and obeys them. And his first vocation where the child is given work to do and responsibilities. That's a great observation of what this, this commandment means. Beloved, the promise to children who honor their parents is life. It's the promise of the gospel. Long life and real inheritance and ultimately what the New Testament tells us is that we inherit from God the Holy Spirit. God comes and he becomes our inheritance. And in the Old Testament, the, the way the laws worked is the oldest son got a double inheritance because it was his responsibility to care for aging parents. And, and so then as you, as you read the rest of the law of Moses, the explanation of this command has to do with honor at every level. We read that in the shorter catechism this morning. Honoring those in authority who are over you, the president, the governor, the police, your, your boss, whom you're better than, you're still supposed to honor, your, your teachers who you're smarter than, you're still supposed to honor, your elders who you're holier than, you're still supposed to honor, and of course, your parents who you expand beyond in all measure, I'm sure. And so when you read... <clears throat> We're not going to read it this morning because it's too long, but there's three chapters in the middle of the book of Deuteronomy that are all devoted to ha- describing how Israel is to honor all of their le- leaders, and it describes it in great d- detail. And this is the way we honor God, a- a- and it's the pathway of life. So this morning, I just want to give you a few examples. The first one is from Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. There it is. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. I think if our culture followed this command, Twitter would be dead. It would disappear tomorrow if we followed this law. You know, I deleted my Twitter account last January. I was in India just reading this gluck every day. And it was death to my soul as people are cursing each other over their political views. How silly is that? That's a Romans 14 issue. And everybody's taking pot shots at the president. He just sits there on a pedestal and people are hating on him. Constant political division, cursing of the president and each other. Beloved, this ought not be. It's the pathway of death. Here's another one. Verse, uh, this is Leviticus 19, 32. It says, you shall stand up before the gray head. I like this one. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. They practice this in India. I love that part of their culture. That's way better than our culture. I walk in a room and people stand up. Isn't that the way it should be? And so, well, it's because I have gray hair. So, that is so completely countercultural to our youth-driven and our youth-idolized world where everything's built around children. You know, even in the PCA in our own denomination, if you're my age, I'm 58, it's hard to get a job as a pastor. Everybody wants Andrew because they think he rocks and they think I don't know anything because <laughs> I'm too old to even know the culture or how to raise your kids. What do I know? Mine are grown. 
So, so it's counterculture. You know, if the resurrection is real, then, beloved, we can honor the gray head because they're closer to resurrection day. But on the other hand, if there is no resurrection, well, then we're all going to need a facelift, right? Our secularism, you see, our secularism explains our fear of old age and our, and our, and our addiction to youth because we doubt the resurrection is real. So this is all we got. So we got to cling to young times. Here's the New Testament version of honor. It's right here in Hebrews 13, verse 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Not because they're doing a good job, but because of their accountability. He says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those they'll have to give an account. As those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. Oh, please. And not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Now we're back to parents. I think you'll like this one, parents. Here we go. Exodus chapter 21, verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. And all God's people said... Amen. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. I know you think this is arcane, but these are life and death issues among the people of God and in every culture. When you lose honor, you lose the pathway of life. And this isn't talking about small children who throw a temper tantrum, though certainly they're sinful at heart. This is older and grown children who rebel and turn away. In fact, we're not going to read it, but there's a provision in Deuteronomy 21 for parents with rebellious children who are gluttons and drunkards and won't repent to turn them over to the local judges for discipline up to and including death if they'll not turn away from their foolishness. You see, the health of the community depends upon such discipline. And our humanistic me-first culture says instead that teenagers, young people, are meant to rebel against their parents, to to go their own way, to, to get away from authority as fast as possible, to discover ourselves and what truth means to us. And, and so we go to the college to do our own thing. It, it, it's meant to be a time to experiment with sex and alcohol and drugs and all the fun things supposedly that our parents kept us from killing ourselves with. And, and, and the problem is, is our colleges actually encourage this. This is our inheritance from the 60s and a and, hundred years of progressivism where youth reigns and the inmates are in charge of the asylum. It, it's, it's radical individualism. And the gospel says that this is the pathway of death and destruction. And I see it everywhere in America. If, here's the next one, Proverbs 20, 20. If one curses his father, his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter, utter darkness. That's just godly wisdom. And the Proverbs is full of such warnings about turning away from parents. Because such rebellion is, is actually... Uh, it's essentially disinheriting yourself from your parents and, and from God himself. One writer that I read this week said that he's told his kids, he's trained them in the Lord and raised them, and he's told them that if they leave the faith, then he'll disinherit them. Now, that's serious business. I don't know if I'm ready to do that. But, but it's not just teenagers, you see. That's what you got to see. This is on us as well who are older. 
The application of this command carries to the other side, to grown children who loving, aging parents. Some of you are in that position right now. we're, We're a throwaway culture. Babies are throwaway and old people are throwaway. And just as teenagers want to get away from their parents as fast as possible, many middle-aged children believe the same thing. They want the same thing. No responsibility for their aging parents. I got to live for me. Listen, I won't stand in the pulpit and tell you that putting your, children, your parents in a nursing home is a sin. It's not. I don't know your situation. But failing to make your parents care as much a priority in your life as, your care was, as their care was for you is a sin. And you see, you set your own standard in this regard. Honoring our aging parents, beloved, is as much our responsibility as loving our kids. For your family to flourish and for the multi-generational flourishment and, 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 for, and the, for the family of God to flourish in, in the church from generation to generation. It requires believers to love and train their kids in the faith and when they're done to then turn around and invest in the love and care of their parents. It's the cycle of faithfulness. And you have responsibilities on both ends. Here's, here's a sample of it from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, 6, 16. The Apostle James says that true religion is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. Here's what Paul says. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And so the Bible says that you reap what you sow. Those of you who are my age, I can tell you that your kids will learn from you. As you care for your parents, they're going to learn from you how you're to be taken care of. You're setting your own standard even now. So generational faithfulness to Christ comes from a culture of honor and grace. And you see, the only way to create a culture of honor is by first creating a culture of grace. And that's the second point that I wanted you to see is that generational faithfulness to Christ comes from a culture of grace. You know, you know the, fir- the first and primary way to create a culture of grace in your family and in mine is by being serious about our relationship with Christ and his church. So when we pray from the Lord's prayer, Lord, your kingdom come your will be done, we are asking the Father to create a heavenly culture in our earthly family, a a, a culture of overflowing grace, of loving discipline and easy forgiveness. That's the way God treats you in Christ. He, He gives you overflowing grace and loving discipline and easy forgiveness. So, so that's the culture we want in, in our family and church. So then we ask the question, what's the goal of parenting? Well, there's, a, there's several ways you can answer that. Typically, I, I talk about three ways. So, some parents are going after traditional obedience. They, they want good kids. Uh, who doesn't want good kids? But this is often how religious churchgoers parent. Using the law to build order in the home and being strident about obedience. The problem, of course, is that good people still go to hell. Only forgiven people go to heaven. 
Obedience as the primary goal in the family often produces anger and disobedience and rebellion because the purpose of the law is to point to Christ. That's what it's for as a tool in parenting is to point your children to Christ. Now, on the other side, other parents parent for their children's personal happiness. Maybe this is you. They they want happy, fulfilled, and successful kids. Now, who doesn't want that? We we all want that. And and this is often how non-churchgoers parent. The, The problem, of course, is if you make personal happiness the goal of your parenting, then you create idolatry in your child and you. They, your children become an idol. And, and, and not honor and faithfulness. You see, the biblical goal is to raise kids who follow Christ. That's the goal. And that's what this command means. Raising kids who follow you and following Christ. Here's Proverbs 22, 6. One of the most abused scriptures. Uh, Verses in scripture. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is proverbial wisdom. It's not an absolute promise. God is in charge of all these things. Parenting is by grace. So what kind of parent are you? What kind of parent will you be? Uh, There are four kinds. Neglectful, dominant, permissive, and gospel parents. And we're not going to talk about neglectful. If you're here, you're not neglectful you'd be sleeping in. The dominant parents make much more, uh, make much of their authority and they make sure their kids always do what's right. It's a form of idolatry. You are God for your kids. They'll always do what's right. And if they're wrong, you'll always fix it. Now that's a pathway to hurt and anger and, and it misunderstands the commands. On the other hand, permissive parents believe that love means letting your kids do whatever they want to, to find themselves. And, and permissive parents who are in the church will often say that joining the church, making a profession of faith, taking communion, being religious, well, it's really up to their kids. They're going to let them decide. It always makes me laugh. I I laugh when I hear that because I don't know any of those parents who make brushing their kids' teeth an option, right? Now, which is more important, your teeth or your eternity? I'm not certain, but I'll let you figure it out. Why, Why would the Bible be an option in your children's home? I mean, if you believe the gospel is true, why would you make truth an option? Here's Deuteronomy 6. It's not on the board. Just listen. He says, and these words that I command you today. This is right after the Ten Commandments. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you will teach them diligently to your children, and you'll talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You see, you're making the, the, the word of God and the gospel of God, your way of life and your family, you talk about it all the time because it's the best thing there is. So obviously then we want to be gospel-driven parents. We want to parent the way God parents us, love and discipline and forgiveness and joy and relationship. You see, our children learn what God is like from us. And you know, that's a heavy load. I feel that. As a parent, I know you do. It's it's a reason, beloved, to pray, to pray often. It's also a reason to lift a burden off your shoulders by making much of Jesus yourself. 
You know, the one prayer that I know that God always answers is to give us more of himself. If you ask for the Holy Spirit, he won't give you something else. He'll give you himself. And he'll slowly take away what, 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 what's in you that diminishes him. And so that's been my prayer for myself and for my kids. Because I know I can't do this on, the, uh, on my own. I'm not that clever. I'm not that loving. You see, the family culture that we need is to make Jesus the centerpiece of our own life and of our family. And I promise you, it won't be oppressive to your kids. He'll do the rest. Make him the centerpiece of your life and, and, and it will flow to your kids as you train them in honor and grace and faithfulness. Now, now, what are the non-negotiables? Brushing your teeth is often, obviously one. I don't know anybody who doesn't do that. Here's, here's my non-negotiables. Read your Bible and pray regularly. It's not easy, but it's simple. Read your Bible and pray regularly by yourself, as couples, as a family. It's the words of life. Fully embrace your church. And the pastor said, amen. Be discipled and, and disciple others. Serve the poor and take your kids. You know, one of the best pictures that we have in our family album is my son, Matt, who's 33. He was four and Josh was two. And we're at Cedar Mission, downtown Melbourne, Florida. Christ is the answer mission where all the drunks and bums came and they, the building needed painting. My kids are standing there with paintbrushes painting. It's awesome. What a great picture. And dad's right behind them fixing it. <laughs> but you know, my kids learned to serve the poor because we served the poor. They love the church because we love the church. This is the kind of inheritance that we want our kids to have. It's more important than money or music lessons or sports or high SAT scores. Those are important things, but this is more important because this is the pathway of life, long life, eternal life. And Paul follows the command. I mentioned it earlier in Ephesians 6 with a warning to dads. Dads are harder on their kids than moms are. It's in a mom's nature to always cuddle and, and encourage. It's in dad's nature to give him the business. That's just the way it is. You need both. So he says, don't exasperate your kids. How do you do that? Well, don't be harsh. That's the way you exasperate your kids. The law's not given to you for you to be harsh. You don't have to convince them they're wrong. Every kid knows when they're wrong. Don't, don't be overly critical. Don't be too strict. Give them some chance to make mistakes and learn and to grow. That's how you learn. Don't fix everything. Don't play favorites. That's Jacob's fault. His brother, his, his son got sold into slavery because he played favorites. How about that? Don't use shame and humiliation to motivate. Your children already feel shame. You don't, they don't, you don't need to add to it. Don't, don't have a success idol for your kids. Don't be too busy. And make sure you give them responsibility. This is, it's really simple, beloved, but, but it's not easy. It's hard. We're in the thick of it. Love God and make much of Jesus and your children will too. Love your parents and show your kids how to love their parents. Love others. 
Show honor and respect, and your kids will too. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth or inherit the land. This is the inheritance of the gospel. Now, what an amazing heritage that is. It's an inheritance for your children's children. It's so good. Because you see, generational faithfulness to Christ comes from a culture of honor and a culture of grace. It's good. But here's the bad news. The bad news is, is if, you're, if you're legalistic and highly critical of your kids, well, they're going to throw those stones back at you. You, don't, you live in a glass house at that point, and they will throw those rocks back at you and point out your hypocrisy regularly. And it'll hurt. And then they'll walk away from the church. And if you practice dishonor and regularly eat the pastor for Sunday lunch, you know, some families do that. They have the pastor every week for lunch. He's just not there. And, and, And your children, if they experience this, I guarantee your children will not love God's church. And they'll even be wondering why you even go when you're going to have the pastor for lunch. And don't do it to the president either. I don't care which party he's in. And and if you parent in fear and, and leave them to figure it out for themselves, well, then someone else, a teacher, a professor at college, a coworker, someone else will disciple your kids, and it may not be pretty. Don't let somebody else do it. And, And young people, if you walk away from Christ and rebel against your parents' authority, then you're in serious trouble as you disinherit yourself from the kingdom. Don't do it. It's dangerous. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, even the sin of dishonor, even the sin of faithlessness, in our parenting. And he rose from the dead to to make us brand new, to give us hope and to give us a new culture of grace and honor and love in our families. And he will give you those things if you ask. So will you ask him today for life and love and honor and grace? And, And beloved, he's so good that he also makes a pathway for reconciliation Maybe some of you have some reconciling to do, some hurts in your own family. Well, here's the good news. The good news is that your standing in heaven is always and only in the righteousness of Christ. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. Not the ones you've hurt, not the ones who've hurt you. You're free in Christ. And so that means we're free to confess our familial sins. And and to reconcile with those we have hurt and and with those who have hurt us. So ask the Father this morning for reconciling grace for those you're at odds with in your family and extended family. Whether you're the one who's done the hurting or you're the one who's been hurt. And if you have grown kids and they're far from home and don't want to come home, ask the Father to fix that by showing you what you've done that you might confess your sins and make it up to them. You know, one of the most amazing stories in the Bible is the prodigal son. Everybody knows it at least a little bit. The, 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 the younger son 
asks for his inheritance and he runs off with it and he wastes it all on wine, women, and song. I'm not sure whether he did that at Georgia Tech or at UGA, but it was one of those two places. And, and he comes to the point that he's without hope, right? He's eating pig's food. He's so desperate. And so he realizes that he needs to go home, but he, he has no hope of being a son. So he's just going to go home as a servant, as a slave. At least he'll get fed. And, and, and so he turns back to his father in hopes of being a servant, And then he gets home and the most amazing thing happens. His father welcomes him. And then the most normal thing happens. His brother is angry. And notice that the older brother is a strict adherent to the fifth command and is legalistic about it. Because he imagines himself a strict law keeper who has always honored his dad. And he imagines that his dad is some kind of lawmaster who will only reward the one who has done this without error. And in his mind, his brother, his little brother, is gone. And rightly so. For the dishonor, the disinheritance, he's forgotten and he's cast off. But you see, beloved, that's not our father in heaven. He's not like that. He welcomes us back. No matter how many times we've violated the fifth commandment, he always welcomes back the wondering child who wants to come back. In fact, he leaves the 90 and 9 in the fold to chase the one. He shares himself again and again with the failed child who has no hope. He invites us home. And so this morning, I invite you home to the Father. If you're far away, if you've been far, today is the day to come home. Run to him and receive his mercy and forgiveness because you see the fullness of the fifth command, the fullness of our inheritance is God himself. Because if God loves us, and you believe he does, right? And he really loves us. What's the best gift he could give us? Well, he would give us himself. And that's what he does in Christ Jesus. And that's the kind of father I want to be. With a home that is always safe to come back to. Safe space, they call it. That's what I want my home to be. Safe space where Jesus reigns and love rules and anybody is welcome to come in. In fact, I would say, you know what the definition of parenting success is? The definition of success is to have grown children who want to come home for Thanksgiving dinner. That really is it. When they're 25 and they want to go to church with you on Sunday, that's the two characteristics of successful parenting. Here's what God says to you in Isaiah 46. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth and carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
For that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we honor you this morning because you are good and you are gracious and you are loving. And we praise you because your forgiveness is full and free in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of us standing in this place right now has sins to confess, either as kids or as parents or as both. And Lord, we honor you this morning that not only do you teach us your way and give us your grace, but you forgive us every step of the way as we screw it up. And so, Father, we pray that you would develop a culture of honor and a culture of grace in our homes where the standards are high and the forgiveness rolls like the river. And as you do that, would you elevate the Lord Jesus in our own lives? Make us... Father, are people serious about Bible and prayer? But Father, most importantly, let us get, get you in the process. Would you give us more of yourself, we pray? And as you make much of us, Lord, we'll make much of you. And we thank you for it in the Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Before us this morning is the Lord's table. You know, the invitation of the gospel The invitation of the Father, the fifth command, is to come home and to be his child and to come to the feast. Worship in the Bible is always a feast, and the invitation of the gospel is to come to the Father's house and hear him speak to you words of grace and loving discipline and forgiveness. And then he says, all right, everybody, let's go eat. And that's what we do when we worship on Sunday. And so on the night before, he was, the night before he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, that he broke it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the body of Christ that's broken. And Father, as we, as we eat just a little morsel of it this morning... Lord, we pray that it would be a type of the feast that is to come for us and that we might feast on the body and blood of the Lord, not physically, not magically, Lord, but spiritually. Would you fill us with yourself? Lord, we we haven't prayed up enough to be ready and we haven't forsaken our sin enough. We don't even know what they all are. But by your grace, we come to the table to feast with you because that's your invitation. And we warmly, Lord say yes to you. And we do it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been baptized, I invite you to feast at the Lord's table.